The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 13 tonight. We're going to be talking about a very important subject. We're going to talk about what it means and what it looks like to live with a servant heart. Now, when I talk about a servant heart, something within us is resistant to that. (laughs) Something recoils at this idea of service. Why is that? Well, because in this world, It seems like those at the bottom exist to serve those privileged few at the top, the 1%, as it were. It seems like the goal in this life is to climb the ladder of success until you've reached a place where you can pay other people to do a bunch of stuff for you. That's how this world system is designed, and that's how it works. But as so many of you are aware, in God's economy, things look different. And so many of the things in God's kingdom look backwards compared to the the system of this world. For instance, in God's kingdom, up is down and down is up. In God's kingdom, if you want to gain your life, you have to lay it down. You have to lose your life in order to find it. In God's kingdom, the last shall be first and the first are often last. And in God's kingdom, the servant is the greatest of all. Now, is there anything more backwards than that compared to the system of this world? You see, the Bible never tells us that we shouldn't aspire to greatness. Greatness is is something that inherently we are designed by our creator to want and to pursue. And the Bible never says, don't pursue greatness. If anything, it encourages it. So then what it does is it qualifies what greatness really is and what it looks like. And it tells us that Jesus was the greatest of all, and yet he came as a humble servant. Now, there is perhaps no story found anywhere in the Bible that better illustrates or drives home the upside-down nature of God's kingdom or the servant nature of Jesus' ministry than the story we find here in John chapter 13. So with that, let's go ahead and begin reading. It says there in verse 1, It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice how John begins the chapter by setting the stage, and he once again alludes to this specific hour that that cast a shadow over Jesus' entire ministry. And everything Jesus did seemed to revolve around this mysterious hour. Now, up to this point, he's mentioned the hour six times. And every time up to this point, he said, my hour has not yet come. But now, for the first time, the climactic hour that his whole life had been building up to has finally arrived. The hour for what? And he tells us there, the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Now, between him leaving and ascending, there's the shadow of the cross, right? But it is worth noting that after spending the first half of his gospel on three years of Jesus' public ministry, 
his healing ministry, his teaching ministry, all of that. John now is going to use the next five chapters to relate a story that is comprised of just three hours. So think about that. 12 chapters to describe three years, and then five chapters to describe a three-hour window of time. Beginning here in chapter 13, and then going all the way through chapter 17, it all centers around a single meal. We know this meal as the Lord's Supper. You know how it is. When you're with someone in their final moments, those moments are weighted. And you tend to remember last moments with with loved ones in greater detail. People's words and their actions tend to carry more weight when time is short. And, And that's how I think this night was for John as he sat down as an older man and reflected on his time with Jesus. Even after many years, he could still recall various details and conversations from this night. Why? Because it was the final night that he got to spend with Jesus before he went to the cross. And so it's notable that here in verse 1, John speaks of the love that was in the air. And he says, he loved us. We were his. And he loved us till the end. Love is the dominant chord in this scene. And notice how it says he loved them till the end. Now, this could mean that he loved them till the end of his life, which was very much true. But the Greek word for end there could also mean completely. He loved them with everything that he had. He loved them till the very end. Or you might say this, he loved them to the uttermost. And let me just say this, what Jesus felt for them, he feels for you too. His love for you is endless. I love the way that Paul described the love of God. And this is in Ephesians chapter 3. And this is part of a prayer that Paul prayed for the church there in Ephesus. And I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. He said, and I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul starts out trying to describe the love of God. He starts out trying to define the parameters and the perimeter of God's love, the length, the width, the breadth, the height. And then he just gives up and he says, you know what? It's a love that surpasses knowledge. It can't be outlined. It can't be defined. It must be experienced. God's love for you is is endless. His love for you has no beginning. I love it how in Jeremiah 31.3 it says that he has loved you with an everlasting love. There is no point you can go back as far as you want in history. There has never been a moment in time when God did not love you. You are the object of his love. His love has no beginning, but his love also has no end. Psalm 136 says it like this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his love endures forever. You can go as far as you want in either direction, and there has never been, nor will there ever be, a time when God stops loving you or hasn't loved you. His love doesn't come with an expiration date. His love is relentless. And by the way, you can't outlast his love, and you can't outrun his love. 
I love the way Corey Ten Boom, that precious saint from a generation ago, put it. She said, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. And perhaps that's a word for someone in here tonight, or it's a word for someone you're praying for. And you have a loved one, maybe it's a son or a prodigal daughter, and they just, they're in this dark place, and you feel like they're unreachable, and they're resistant to the love of God. Well, check it out. You can try to resist his love, but you won't succeed any more than a sandcastle that is trying to resist the incoming tide. Somebody say amen. Because Jesus loves his own, and he loves them till the end. He loves us to the uttermost, or as one preacher put it, he loves us to the guttermost. And his love for his disciples found countless expressions throughout the course of his three-year ministry, but on this night, it led him to serve them in a particular way. He got down in his hands and knees, and he served them. Now, this strikes me, because knowing what he knew, And what awaited him in just a few hours' time, his arrest and his trial and the beatings and the the nails and and the spear and and, and the, 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 the cat of nine tails and all of that. And yet Jesus still chose not to focus on himself, but instead he spent his final hours serving those around him. Let's read about it there in verse two. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The meal that is described here is none other than the Passover meal, and it's one of the seven annual feasts that Jews celebrate throughout the calendar year. And this meal, it it commemorated that time and that day when God delivered Israel with a mighty hand from bondage and slavery there in Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, and he led them through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land with the blood of the Lamb on the door and all of that. And, And so all of that is a type and a shadow of Jesus. And that's the meal that they're sharing together. And then notice how John is careful to point out that Jesus, at this moment, during the course of this meal, he's already fully aware of the treachery that lie within Judas's heart. His ultimate betrayal, the seeds of that had already been sown. Judas had already gone to the chief priests and sold out his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And John also is careful to point out that Jesus was fully aware of who he was and the power that he possessed. He knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going. And then in response to that, he says, so, almost like in light of what he knew, Jesus got up from the meal and began to wash their feet. John is trying to make a connection between what Jesus knew and what Jesus did. Why? I believe it's because the things he points out, they're the very things that tend to keep us from serving those around us. Let's talk about it. Number one, Jesus knew who he was, and he knew the power he possessed. He had all authority. He was God in human flesh. There was nothing that he couldn't do. And knowing that he had all power, he got up and he served. How different that is from this world. 
Those with power typically like to be served. Yet here we see the very thing that could have and perhaps should have kept Jesus from serving others actually compelled him to do that very thing. And just by way of contrast, I was reading in my studies about King Charles, the newly appointed King of England, and how when he travels, whenever he goes anywhere, how he travels with an entourage of 101 attendants. How would you like that? Anywhere you're going, you've got 101 people at your beck and call to just do whatever you need. These attendants that travel with King Charles include butlers, valets, chefs, publicists, stylists. He has someone each morning take and press his pajamas and get this, iron his shoelaces. That's true. He has someone else whose job includes the the task of squeezing toothpaste onto his toothbrush, because we all know how hard that can be. He even travels with his own personal toilet seat. I guess it's for his royal highness. And wherever he goes, he brings that with him. And only he's allowed to use it. And he brings with him Kleenex velvet toilet paper. I don't know how many ply that is, but I've never seen it. And that's what we expect from a king, right? When you're at the top, kings aren't supposed to wash dishes or do laundry or take out the garbage. But Jesus isn't like every other king. He's a humble king. He's a servant king. He knew who he was. He knew where he came from, and so he was able to serve. Listen, let me connect the dots to your life. When you are secure in your identity, you don't need others to prop you up, and so you become free to serve. When you know what your status is, in God's eyes, you don't need to build your status in the eyes of this world. When you know that you're not defined by how other people view you, it frees you to serve other people. Amen? And this is the culture that we want to build. This is the heart of our Heavenly Father. I was thinking back to a time a handful of years ago when in one of our children's ministry classes, there were two teachers and a parent helper. And the three people serving those three and four-year-olds included a partner in a law firm, a pharmaceutical rep, and a Navy medical doctor. I mean, these people were accomplished in their respective fields, and people sought them out for advice, but they didn't see it as beneath them to serve in a classroom full of three-year-olds. They were free to serve others because they were secure in who they were in God's eyes. And the more secure you are, the greater servant you'll be. And you can always tell those people that need to be propped up because they're trying to put other people down. Now, nothing highlights the servant nature of Jesus' ministry more than the fact that he washed Judas's feet. Think about that with me. John goes to great lengths here to point out that when Jesus got up from the table, he already knew that Judas had betrayed him in his heart. Yet nothing about the way that Jesus treated Judas on this night tipped off any of the other disciples that he was the traitor. Did you know that? Think about it. I mean, at one point later on in this same meal, Jesus is going to flat out say, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all looking around and they're like, is it you? Is it me? Who is it? You know, and nobody thinks Judas. When, when we see him depicted in films and movies, you can usually tell who Judas is because he's got like a black cape that he's hiding. And he's like, oh, he's got a sinister laugh. But not so. 
I know if I were Jesus, I certainly would have treated Judas a little differently. <laughs> I mean, like when nobody was looking, I probably would have, you know, snuck a kick me sign onto his back or looked for opportunities to trip him or tell him, give him bad directions. Yeah, we're going to meet you over there, you know. Wouldn't you? I mean, it's Judas. But that's not what Jesus did. He brought him in to his inner circle, one of the 12. He broke bread with him, an act of intimacy, and he even washed his feet. He loved him to the very end. I don't know about you, but there's times when I struggle to love and serve the people that I'm closest to, let alone my enemies. And I, I read about this story and I think, Jesus, why would you serve a backstabber? Why would you serve a betrayer? And, and my heart turns and I almost got a little angry until I realized how many times I've been just like Judas. And maybe you have too. How many times have I Stab the Lord in the back, as it were. How many times have I turned my back on him? And how many times have I betrayed my Lord? Yet he continues to serve me. He loved me. He went to the cross for me, just like he did you. And so that humbles us, but it also encourages us that there are no feet so dirty that the Lord's not willing to wash them. Let's talk for a minute about dirty feet. Because that's what Jesus was doing here. Foot washing was a common practice in Jesus' day. You have to imagine that these roads were dirty, and just made of dirt, and the only shoes back then were sandals. They would have been made from a thin piece of leather attached to the ankle by a cord of rope that would wrap around, and, and that offered scant protection from the elements, and so the result was everybody had dirty feet. And so it was customary upon entering someone's home that you would have a bowl there and that either you would wash their feet or you would have someone whose job it was to wash the feet of your guests. Usually this job was reserved for the lowest servant in the home. There's an Old Testament scholar by the name of Andreas Kostenberger, and he notes that the duty was usually reserved for slaves. And there were some rabbis who taught that this was such a demeaning lowly job that no Jew should even have to do it. That makes what Jesus did even more astounding. And then I want to add just another layer to this whole thing. Because in Luke's gospel, so Luke has his version of these, this account, this, this night, and he adds another layer of insight into what was happening in the room just prior to Jesus excusing himself from the table. And here's what Luke tells us was going on. Since it's so long, just read along in your head and I'll read it to you. This is Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. He tells us that there was a dispute that arose among them, that's the disciples, as to which of them was considered the greatest. And he said to them, so this is Jesus now, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves." So picture this scene. They're all there, and they're just engaging in conversation, enjoying one another's company, and then the topic of conversation arises. 
Which one of us do you think is Jesus' favorite? (laughs) This was their favorite topic of debate and discussion, and they were constantly arguing with each other about which one of them was the greatest. And perhaps a few of them, you know, Peter looks over at Jesus, like, you know it's me, right? Come on. And they, they kind of make eye contact with Jesus, and, and, and they're waiting for him to weigh in on the debate and settle the issue once and for all. But then Jesus does something else. He stands up, he gets up, and shows them what true greatness looks like. He takes off his outer robe. You see, in those days, men wore typically three layers of garments, and they would have a long flowing robe that would go down to like their ankles, And then underneath that, they would wear like a tunic, which was kind of like shorts and a tank top. And underneath that, they would have their undergarments. And so John tells us that Jesus took off his outer garment. Then he grabs a towel and he fills a bowl with water and he begins to go from disciple to disciple and he washes their feet. The whole thing was like a wordless sermon about what it really means to be great in the kingdom of God. And he goes from person to person in verse six, he comes to Simon Peter who says to him, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing now, but later you're gonna understand. No, Peter said. You'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Just give me a full on bath in that case, Jesus. And he answered him in verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. Let's talk about what it means to be washed by the word. As is typically the case, Peter takes Jesus literally when Jesus is trying to convey a spiritual truth through means of a metaphor. You see, Peter's dirty feet symbolized something of his spiritual condition, which might, if left untreated, affect his relationship with the Lord. And Jesus points out to him, no, 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 you don't need the whole bath. Those who are clean have no need for a bath. He's talking of the fact that, Peter, because of your connection to me, you've already been cleansed. You've been washed. You've been made right in your soul. This is true for all of us. There's a sense in which when you come to Jesus, it's as though God takes a bar of soap and he just washes your soul so that it's clean on the inside. Your sins are forgiven and you're declared righteous in God's eyes. You are cleansed from all defilement. That is glorious news. And some of you know what I'm talking about. I remember what it was like for me and how before I came to the Lord and surrendered my life to Jesus, there was this sense that I carried with me everywhere I went that I just, I was, I was defiled. Like, I couldn't get rid of this feeling. Like, I was dirty on the inside. And no matter how much I scrubbed, I couldn't rid myself of this feeling of guilt and shame. And then I finally surrendered my heart to the Lord. It was like, I'm cleansed. He's washed my sins away. Oh, I feel so good. And Peter had already had that experience. He'd surrendered his heart to the Lord. And yet Jesus says, but you still need to be washed, your feet. And in the same way, as you and I walk through this world as believers, there's a sense in which we still get dirty. 
You know, sin makes us dirty. Compromise makes us dirty. We have hearts that tend to drift into unhealthy things, and we get clouded with dust and debris, and sometimes we get defiled. Just as they would walk the dusty streets of Israel and get defiled, we do too as we walk through this world. You can't help but get kind of dirty just being in this world, and that's why we need to allow Jesus to wash us. So how does that happen? How does the Lord wash us? Well, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I believe he gives us some insight into how this washing takes place. You see, in Paul's instructions to husbands there in Ephesians 5, he describes how they're to love their wives. And in part of what he tells them, let's read this together out loud. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Are you guys reading with me? Okay, come on. Let's try it again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. I draw your attention to that phrase that I had underlined there in the middle, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Husbands, did you know that you have a spiritual responsibility to serve your wife in this way? Did you know that? And I'm not saying that so that you feel guilty tonight. And it doesn't mean you need to like prepare a Bible study that, you know, okay, honey, sit down. You build a pulpit and you drag it into your living room and I got to wash you with the water of the word. No, no, no. It's this idea that you are saturating your own soul in the word of God so that it comes out in the way that you communicate and in the way that you speak and in the way that you pray and in the way that you lead and in the way that you love. And it has a cleansing effect on the entire family. He says that you're to love your wife just as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? He bled and he died for the church. He gave himself up for the church. And this husband's is the standard, the measure by which we are called to love and serve our wives. And part of that includes this washing with water. And when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, I believe there was a sense in which he was cleansing them. In John 15, Jesus told his disciples, now you are clean by the word I have spoken to you. That's John 15, 3. So God's word has a quality, like a water-like quality to it. And when you spend time in the word each and every day, as I hope you're doing, we have Bible reading plans that we can furnish you with, but you just, you need to get in the word. You say, I know I'm supposed to read the word, but it, it's just, it doesn't make sense to me, and it, it's difficult for me to understand, and isn't that kind of your job anyways? <laughs> Well, yes, I'm happy to share the word with you, but you need to develop the daily discipline of opening up the scriptures. Why? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, number one the word is like water in that it cleanses us continually by reminding us that our sins have been washed away. David talked about this in Psalm 51, verse 7, when he says, you have cleansed my sin. It's this washing effect. Lord, I feel cleansed. I, feel for, I know that I'm forgiven. I'm reminded of the efficacy of your blood, that it washes me whiter than the driven snow. 
Number two, just like water, the word satisfies the soul. So it washes, it cleanses the soul, but it also satisfies the soul. Remember that conversation that Jesus had in John chapter four with the woman at the well? He said, whoever drinks of this water is going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give, that will become like in them a spring of living water. So the water satisfies you, it feeds you, it nourishes you, it quenches the thirst in your soul. And then number three, the word just like water, it scrubs and it washes and it removes pollutants. How shall a young man cleanse his way, Psalm 119.11, by taking heed according to thy word? Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It is the word that cleanses us. It removes the pollutants and the stimulants and, and the dross of this world. Well, let's finish up here in verses 12 through 17. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sends him. Now that you know these things, happy are you or blessed are you if you do them. This act that Jesus performed this act of service. It was, it was a living parable. You know what a parable is, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So it was a parable of Jesus' whole ministry, but it was also a pattern for our life. Let me explain. What Jesus did on this night, it serves as a parable of his entire ministry. Just as he got up from the table and condescended and got down on bended knee and washed their feet, that was a picture or it was representative of his whole mission in coming to earth. And, and Paul describes this in great detail there in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where he says, in your relationships, take this mind on you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. And he took upon himself the form of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God hath highly exalted him to the highest place, and he's given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Somebody say amen. That's like an ancient hymn, perhaps the first hymn that was ever penned. And Paul includes it in his letter to the Philippians, describing how Jesus abased himself. He humbled himself. He was God, but instead of clinging to his divine rights, he set those aside and he took upon himself the form or the nature of a servant. Literally, it says he made himself nothing. That is, he divested himself of his divine, divine prerogatives as God. He emptied himself. Think about that. The greatest condescension in the history of humanity. God became a man. 
In Hollywood, we celebrate rags to riches tales, don't we? And so we love the story about, you know, the the guy at the bottom of the the social economic rung who climbs the ladder and becomes the CEO of the company, and we'll make a movie of that story. Or we'll we'll find a handmaid who wins the heart of the prince and becomes herself a princess. This is the stuff that fairy tales are made of, rags to riches. But when you think about the gospel, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's a riches to rags tale. Jesus was God, but he set his divine prerogatives aside in order that he might take upon himself the form of a servant. He didn't demand to be served, but came to serve others. If ever there was someone who could have and perhaps should have demanded to be served, it was Jesus. But instead of doing that, he took upon himself the form of a servant. Now, in every other religion, philosophy, ism, philosophical movement, it's always set up the same way. The leader is served by his followers, right? So they build him or perhaps her a huge mansion. They give all their money. They wait upon the leader hand and foot. It's like they exist to make the leader's life more comfortable. And they try to supply the leader with whatever they have. Well, in every other religion, that may be how it works, but Christianity is different. Why? Because Jesus is a humble king, and he came to provide us with a different paradigm, a different way for living life. And life in the kingdom looks different. In the kingdom, the way up is down. And Jesus' actions that night, they're not just a parable of his ministry, but they're a pattern for our lives as well. If you want to be blessed, then this is how you do it. You see, in the beginning of Jesus' story, this is, this is a, a thought that hit me late this evening. In, in Jesus' story about the prodigal son, there's a dramatic change that obviously he goes through throughout the course of that story. And in the beginning, he comes to his father and he says, essentially, I want your stuff. Give me your stuff. I just want my inheritance. And the father being generous, even though this is more than a slap in the face, he's basically telling his dad, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance early. And the father says, here you go, divides his land, sells his property, gives the money to his son. And you know, the story goes and wastes it on um, parties and prostitutes and all the rest. But then he gets to this low point where the money has run out and the friends have all gone out the back door and he comes to himself, the Bible says. And he begins to rehearse this speech in his heart. And he says, my father's servants have it so much better. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to return to my father. And this is what I'm going to say. Make me a servant. And so he comes back to his father's house. But before he can even get into his speech, the father envelops him in in a big bear hug. And he covers his face with kisses and puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his back and sandals on his feet. And they throw a big party. And the the, the moral of this story is that God is a God who loves to go after the lost. But there's a subplot in there, too. You see, immaturity in the kingdom of God looks like this. I serve God because I want his stuff. Give me the stuff. And you can tell when somebody has grown in their maturity by the posture of their heart. And it's reflected in the attitude that reflects the heart of the father, which is the heart of a servant. So when you've reached that place of maturity in your walk with the Lord, you return to the father. Only this time you're not saying, give me the stuff. You're saying, make me a servant. And just like Jesus, we're called to be servants in this world, to serve those around us. And we can do that. Why? Because just like him, we know who we are. We know where we've come from. 
We know where we're headed. We know the authority that we have, that we're sons and daughters of the highest king, that we're children of the most high God. And because we're secure in that identity, it frees us up to serve those around us. And it also frees us up to even serve our enemies. Why? Because we know that when we were enemies of Jesus, he bled and he died for us. He served us when we didn't care, when we were stabbing him in the back, when we had betrayed him, when we had ran after other gods. You say, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can love people who hurt me. I don't know if I can serve in that way. How is this possible? Well, in your own strength, it's not. <laughs> it's only made possible by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, when you surrender to the love of God, that which is impossible suddenly becomes possible. And every command of God is also the enablement of God. And just like Jesus loved his own to the very end and never stopped loving them, he has never stopped loving you. And he has placed his love inside of your heart. He laid down his life for you. And now he never lives to make intercession for you. And so we're invited into this, not so that we can live a life of drudgery, but because God knows that this is the quickest pathway to delight. It is a joy to serve him, which is why when you go throughout the entirety of the New Testament, all of these men who wrote letters and were great apostles and had started these works, they always described themselves in the same way. Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they too had learned that to serve him is to reign as king. We are blessed, ladies and gentlemen, friends, believers, to serve the king of kings, to carry out his mission, to carry the gospel, to take the, the water of the word and to wash one another. And in the process, yes, we tend to get some of that grime on us, but we then run to the Father and he cleanses us, he renews us, he restores us, he revives us. And it's this beautiful thing where we're serving one another, loving one another, outdoing one another in kindness and charity and giving and laying down our lives for each other. This is what God has for us. It's a beautiful picture, is it not? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, now as we move into this time of communion. And what a beautiful opportunity we have, Lord, to sit at your feet once again and to remember the incredible nature of your love, the self-sacrificing nature of your love, that your love refused to quit, your love would not be stopped. Your love carried you to the cross. And, and when we think about what was it that held Jesus on the cross, the answer is provided for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. There was a joy on the other side of Calvary's cross. And you say, what was that note of joy that could be expressed and experienced under those horrific circumstances? And it's quite simple, really. The joy that Jesus had in his heart was you, and it was me. There's a scripture in Isaiah that talks about how our names are written or inscribed in the palms of his hand. Think about that. 
His nine-inch nails were driven through both of his hands, and blood poured out. He thought of you, and he thought of me. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my all. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.